politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. What is the legacy of Henry Kissinger? Why hasn't the number of abortions declined? And should boys who zealously support their football teams be shamed and ostracized? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brandon Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National U podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Waterstone. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we've lost a, a giant, Henry Kissinger, who was influential in U.S. foreign policy for the better part of a century, extraordinary man, extraordinary career, complicated legacy, but you are someone who has a, uh, sometimes takes a, a tragic view of life. And this is one of the themes of Kissinger's statesmanship is that uh, life sometimes presents just bad choices and you got to choose the best of the alternatives, even if it isn't very good. And he criticized the U.S. for not having enough of this kind of tragic mindset. Was he tragic enough for you or too tragic? <laughs> uh, in some cases, too tragic. Um, you know, listen, uh, there, are, there are policies he pursued, uh, recommended and pursued, that I thought <laughs> were wise. There were some that I thought were criminal, to be totally honest. Um you know, if I if I'm in 2023, if I'm criticizing the U.S. government for not having, you know, a con really solid congressional writ for being in Syria on its current mission or in Nigeria on its current mission, of course I have the same complaint about what we did in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Um, but I think you know Kissinger will also be known, you know. You know, Richard Nixon's foreign policy was widely viewed to be a success. I mean, he he did get the U.S. out of Vietnam. He did assist the Israelis in the Yom Kippur War. And then he did affect detente, which arguably turned the tide of the Cold War that was rapidly going against us in the decade of the 1970s. So, uh, so how, how did detente turn the tide? Well, one you broke that you you broke the two you split apart the two biggest and most powerful parts of the communist bloc, uh, and then you began opening China to economic relations with the with the West, which was also a boon. 
um, at the time. Uh, and yeah, you highlighted their divisions, which, um, you know, left, you know, the Soviets scrounging around, um, as far as looking for expansion beyond that, um, through Africa and then eventually Afghanistan, um, which, you know, were disasters. So, you know, those were widely hailed and, and he was considered a wise man in Washington for the longest time. Clinton and basically every subsequent president turned to him for advice. Um, I think his reputation is enhanced by the fact that he is an amazing writer and analyst and uh, amateur historian too. And that, you know, that his books, um, his books are useful even to people who hate his foreign policy. Um, so I think that, that enhances his reputation highly. Uh, I think the biggest criticism of, it, uh, of his legacy though, is that in this opening to China, there was the seed of making America dependent on China in the long run or codependent with China. Um, you know, and in, in a way it's the same trap we fell into in World War II, which is like faced with a choice, we allied with Stalin and, you know, the communist world grew by almost 10 times by the end of World War II, which was not the result you would have wanted going in and certainly not the result conservatives uh, welcomed or were happy about by the time the decade was over. Um, and in the same way, our, our dependence on China now means that we're not insulated from China if China has some kind of calamitous fall the way the Soviet uh, empire did. Uh, we were mostly insulated from that in 1991 um, and had freedom to deal with it creatively. If China begins falling, uh, collapsing economically, uh, we will be implicated in it in a, in a huge way. Uh, and that's one of the, the downstream effects. I don't blame Kissinger entirely because um it was something he started and he couldn't have seen three decades or six decades into the future, how far we would pursue things. Uh, but he was emblematic of this shift to China, um, particularly in his, his post cold war consulting career where he was basically working for the Chinese communist party, uh, even as he was advising Western leaders, um, which, you know, <laughs> is something I think we should, perhaps do more to discourage in our senior diplomats in the future. Yeah. So I'm going to underline something you said and dissent from something you said. Underline just sure. what a writer. I, I haven't read the, the, the White yeah. House years, but I did read Diplomacy, and it's one of the best history books I've ever read. It's just truly extraordinary. And I, I would dissent from the characterization of the bombing campaign and the incursion in, in the Cambodia as criminal. It, it was a hot shooting war. We had the, the right to pursue belligerents across this border. North Vietnam had already flagrantly violated Cambodia's neutrality. And the secret bombing campaign was briefed to the, the top members of, of Congress. And I, I just hate, we've seen a lot of this, the Huffington Post and Ro Rolling Stone, calling him a war criminal and attributing like every death that happened in, in Vietnam, combat deaths, and also deaths at the hands of these communist re regimes. To, to Kissinger and Nixon when they inherited this massive war, you know, and were slowly 
drawing it down doesn't mean they got everything uh, right, obviously. And then what you say about China, it goes to you know the ultimate ir- irony. This is a, a, a great example of the, the tragic in the affairs of men. This is something that, that made sense initially, this, this opening, but it was taken too far and, and um, uh, ha- has the seeds of our, if not our, our destruction, has created an enormous geopolitical challenge. But Maddie, there, there are two ways of uh, uh, looking at, at, at this uh, to simplify there are the kind of the idealists, like Jimmy Carter's foreign policy, Reagan's foreign policy in a, in a more uh, hawkish, conservative way, George W. Bush's foreign policy. And then there's Kissinger, who's more devious, more cunning, just kind of managing uh, conflicts. And both obviously have their their downsides, right? Kissinger wasn't imaginative enough to, to really think about winning the Cold War in the, kind of the simplistic way that Ronald Reagan did, which turns out to be uh, uh, Reagan's, Reagan's policy, turns out to have been the, the correct one rather than detente. But then, you know, you get these excesses of idealism that get us in, in trouble the way we did in the, the Middle East during the George W. Bush administration. Yeah, I mean, I think it's por- important to remember that he was incredibly popular um, when he was active in the 70s. So he obviously got the the Nobel Peace Prize in 73, but that same year, a Gallup poll of Americans listed him as the most admired person in the world. So these successes with the benefit of of hindsight, we we can question um, the, the the long view of some of them, but they were huge successes at the time. So obviously the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty in 1972, the Paris Peace Accords. Um, you mentioned the the Yom Kippur War and uh, you know shuttle dis- d- diplomacy. Um, but I also just think of of Kissinger as a testament to the great American success story. This is a a man who, as a teenager, um, fled Nazi Germany, arrived you know I think three months before Kristallnacht, and managed to rise out of that that history of, of persecution um, starting from nothing and just make a, a huge success of himself. Uh, you know, he served uh, in the US Army and in the infantry. Um, he was a German translator, which was obviously incredibly useful uh, in the, the Battle of the Bulge and then later moved into counterintelligence. And I think he, he maintained that throughout everything that he'd done in his career, his military service was very much the the highlight um, and an affirmation of his his American identity. And I, I think that's true. And I, I think of, of you know, the, the recent turn, I mean, it's not recent because he was always a controversial figure, but, you know, there's a huge um, uh, wave, you see it on social media of people who think he's a war criminal and, uh, you know, actually rejoicing in his death, which is, which is always... Um, a, a nasty, nasty thing to see, but um, I think he was pretty used to being hated. Actually, um, being being a Jew, being from from Germany and or Bavaria, um, and I think he he had a undeniably uh, remarkable career, and uh, his influence will be felt um, for generations, which is which is more than more than can be said for most of us. Charlie, well, the first thing about Henry Kissinger is not just that he was popular in his time, as Maddie says, but that he was just extraordinarily famous. I knew who Henry Kissinger was when I was a child in Faulty Towers, the 
John Cleese BBC comedy series, he throws the name around frequently in conversation in not the nine o'clock news, which was this late 1970s, early 1980s comedy show, satirical comedy show. They made fun of Kissinger all the time. I mean, when I was six or seven, I knew who Henry Kissinger was. And these shows were made in, you know, 1975, 1978. He's now 100, or was until this morning. And it's 2023, and we're still talking about him. That's the first thing. The second thing I think about Henry Kissinger is that I'm glad that he was around. But we can have the debates about foreign policy. Are you a realist? Are you an internationalist? Are you utopian or what you will? But my sense of this is that whatever you are, you always want someone like Henry Kissinger around. You want someone who is a little cynical. You want someone who is a little devious. You want someone who is able to address, even if they don't prevail, those in the room who get carried away. And I wonder who that will be next. As you say, you look back to Iraq and Afghanistan to a lesser extent, and realism starts to look pretty good. Now, equally, perhaps you need a Ronald Reagan in the 19, late 1970s and 1980s when he was president to say, we will win and they will lose. We're right, they're wrong. Our policy is to win and so on and so forth. But a country that doesn't have a cadre of people like Henry Kissinger who are able, and I don't want to say amoral because that sounds pejorative, but who are willing to look at and answer questions without rose-tinted glasses is necessary. There, there are no countries that have lacked these people. There are no wars in which these people have not played a significant role. If you read about the British war effort in the Second World War, you will find them. If you read about the American war effort in the Second World War, you will find them. I mentioned the Second World War because it's the good war. It's the one we all agree on. It's the one that is used quite rightly as the scene of light and darkness. So I... I think that it was a good thing that Henry Kissinger existed, and it was a good thing that he was on our side. And I hope that we have another one within our orbit, even if we don't always want to follow his path. So Charlie has set up the exit question perfectly, MBD, just perfectly. So we do need Henry Kissinger's, absolutely correct, we will have more Henry Kissingers, not just in the sense of people who are kind of, um, to put it crudely, wet, wet blankets or devious and, and cunning and uh, skeptical of, of enthusiasms, but we, we will have giants again, men who have literary talents, who soaked in history and can bestride the, the world stage and, and earn the respect of, of nearly everyone. Or, or we just don't have a, a political culture or a culture generally that will produce such men again. I believe in the near term, we don't have a culture that will produce Kissingers. Um, 
I, I believe educational standards are abysmally low. Um, I believe even autodidacts tend to um, fall prey to monomania um, and glibness in the face of how idiotic our elite is. Um, I think we will get those great men in the future again. Um, I believe, you know, there, there are reforms happening even now at the ground level in education to help produce such men 50, 60 years from now. But um, I think we are without um, men who are as steeped in history and language and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, a deeper sense of life and literature that, that informs the total person. Um, and by the way, Kissinger wasn't just one of the best military, you know, one of the best historians going, historians of power. He was also physically and and uh, courageous. I mean, he, he took on secret missions, basically, playing the role of spy himself at times uh, in order to get diplomacy done. Um, you know, this is truly a, a, a unique figure and they're hard to reproduce. Betty. Um, well, I think that he was a once in a generation kind of talent. So I don't know if we'll have Henry Kissinger's, but I think we'll come up with one. Charlie. See, I think they're separate questions. I think the first question yields a yes. Will we have people who possess Henry Kissinger's abilities and worldview? Yes. Will we? celebrate those people and elevate them in the way that Henry Kissinger was elevated, I don't know. And that's not because of Henry Kissinger's abilities and worldview. It's anyone. The opposite of Henry Kissinger doesn't get elevated now. I don't mm -hmm. think we elevate Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. at yep. the moment. So irrespective of where they are on the spectrum of foreign policy and international diplomacy... I think we are in a really dire place when it comes to the promotion and celebration of excellence. So no, at the moment, we won't get another Henry Kissinger because we haven't got another Reagan and we haven't got another Senator Taft and we haven't got uh, anyone of, uh, of, of, of excellence. If we start to celebrate that again, then yes, we'll get Henry Kissinger's and also anti-Henry Kissinger's, and it will be worth our while. We have yeah, Dean so Hutchinson's all the way down. <laughs> so I'm somewhere between Maddie and MBD. Maddie's right. You know, he was a once-in-a-generation uh, type talent. Um, so e even if your your culture is producing excellence on all cylinders, it's hard to get a Henry Kissinger. But um, I take both MBD and Charlie's point that we – it, it's much harder now to produce and elevate these kind of people. With that, let's stop and hear from our sponsor this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? 
because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil and gas, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction, avoid capital gains tax, and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With this charitable pool trust, you can even generate a lifetime income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org slash NR. That's waterstone.org slash NR. Please check it out. So, Maddie, we've had the distressing news that after this epic victory, pro-life victory of overturning Roe and implementing a, a lot of uh, restrictions and uh, at least a portion of the states that the abortion, the number of abortions has not declined. It has declined. You have more women giving birth in states that have banned abortion, but you have the number going up elsewhere, especially in states where it's legal, that a border or a close to states where it's illegal. What do you make of it? Yeah, so it's a, a good news, bad news um, kind of thing. And, and depending whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, you're going to emphasize um, one, one or the other, the size of this. So so the issue is, as you say, rightly, that um, Abortion has decreased in the in the places we'd expect it to, the places where it's been banned, the states it's been banned. Um, and as a result, there's been a 2.3% increase in the birth, birth rate, which means there are 32,000 human beings alive today that would not have been, were it not for Dobbs. And I think that's an incredible achievement. And when you actually just sit and think beyond the statistics about what that means, I think that's something to be very happy about if you're pro-life. Obviously, the bad news is that overall, this number has been offset by the general 0.2% increase in the in the abortion rate. And you're seeing this, as you mentioned, in border states. So especially places like Kansas, Illinois, New Mexico, that, that border states that have bans. Um, but you're also you're also seeing it in places that uh, are nowhere near uh, such states, such as California, which has had a really significant increase in the, the abortion rate. And so the question is, you know, what's going on? Why is this surge? And I think that the explanation is is actually both for both, both, which is that the law is a teacher. And what's happened in California is, well, firstly, the Biden administration relaxed the uh, male uh, pill, abortion pills, um, the, the laws around that. So people could, they don't even have to go to a clinic now. They can just get these things um, through telemedicine and take them at home. So that that increases access. It's a bit like pornography. You know, if you had to go back when you had to go into some seedy store and show your face and deal with an actual human being, uh, there was one level of friction between you and this vice. Whereas, you know, if you can just do it from the comfort of your, ho your home, you're more inclined to do that. Um, but it's also because California has spent a lot of money um, and time just promoting abortion and saying this is a great social good and saying everybody should have access to this. And I think that's reflected in the numbers. Um, 
you know, what one of the the so the paper that the was a, a group of economists that came up with this paper that pointed to this increased birth rate and how do you how do you deliver the news that that more babies have been born and uh, make it serve a pro-choice argument because like babies being born is just a good thing. Well, you know, they said these unintended births have um, exacerbated economic inequality. And, you know, it's quite true that people who have um, unplanned pregnancies quite often have to make sacrifices because of that. But we don't kill people because their existence makes the existence makes other people less well off. Um, so there's I mean, it, we're just we're just finding out basically what we already knew, which is that this is a, such a divided issue and it affects different parts of the country so differently. But banning abortion does work. If your if your aim is to save babies, then these bans work. So, Charlie, to to Maddie's point, society is not infinitely malleable, obviously. But what we tell ourselves and what messages are sent matter, and what we've seen post-Dobbs, a little bit beforehand because they're already revving up the engine, is that in these states where people are told abortion is good and we're going to do everything you can uh, to help you get one, it has uh, it has unfortunately worked and increased the number of abortions. That's correct. And we're still considerably better off than we were the day before Roe v. Wade was struck down. If you don't care at all about our constitutional system and the mechanisms that we will have to use in our attempt to persuade our fellow citizens that abortion is wrong, then you may look at this and say, well, on aggregate, there's been no change, so it wasn't worthwhile. I couldn't disagree more with that for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that the ability of each polity within the United States to set its own rules on this has been restored. And that's no small thing. It matters that people in pro-life states are able to affect pro-life laws. It was in and of itself An enormous problem that in 1973, the United States Supreme Court usurped its role and lied about the U.S. Constitution in order to take that away. People in free countries do not get to execute perfectly their worldview or to promulgate their morality. But Roe put them further away from being able to do so than they had been before. And it was a problem as a result. It matters that the people of Iowa, say, or Alabama, were unable to pass the laws that they wanted when there was no constitutional reason for their being thwarted. I am pleased that as a voter in Florida, my view on abortion has been put into effect. The fact that the product of that law may be offset by California is terrible if you care about human life, but it's better than it was before. The second reason is that when 
the Dobbs decision was announced, the human hearts across the country didn't change on the instant. What changed was the structure. Anyone who thought that overnight we would see some great awakening on the question of abortion was kidding themselves. What Dobbs did was write a legal wrong, which was worthwhile in and of itself, and give free citizens the tools to try to persuade their peers that they are right. Scalia talks about this in his dissent in Casey, that the Supreme Court, without any textual basis, had taken away the chance for American voters to do what they may do on almost every other topic. That is to discuss and debate and persuade. And that has been restored. Now, we haven't done a particularly good job yet. In fact, as we've discussed before on this podcast, we've lost a great deal. We may lose more. It may be the case that in a few years, the number of abortions has gone up. But at least that chance is there. At least there is now a set of tools available to the American public to argue with one another and resolve this question democratically. So I think we're in a much, much better position, even if the exact same number of abortions continued. And I hope that this doesn't demoralize pro-lifers who have an enormous amount of work to do, but for the first time in 50 years have the scope to do it. So MBD, something you told me years ago has always stuck with me that surgical abortions will come in time to seem totally barbaric and they'll just be banned everywhere. But we're going to have a a real challenge stopping the abortion pills. Yeah, I think that's, I still think that that's the case. I think um, you're seeing in the stats a move toward earlier chemical abortion um, and so-called emergency contraceptives and a kind of ethic developing that that's the, you know, responsible young young woman's way of handling this as opposed to the irresponsible one which is you know being you know ignorant and waiting until you're 12 weeks in or or beyond um to end a pregnancy through surgery um so i I still think that's going to happen but um you know we face this larger problem I, i i i can now no longer think of this Questions separately from the larger pattern demographically of people not having forming families anymore and having fewer and fewer children that, um, that this is all of a, of a piece, um, you know, that we, we find, um, I know my friend, uh, Tim Carney over at American enterprise Institute has a book coming out early next year called family unfriendly about how our culture makes it harder to raise children than it ought to be and kind of discourages parents from even conceiving them. And, um, you know, we're just seeing, you know, I saw a report yesterday that, um, South Korea's birth rate plunged another 12%, if you can believe that, um, to less than 0.7, uh, children per woman over a lifetime, uh, in just the last quarter. So this is this is a nosedive that we all have to figure out how to get out of um, to make our culture more family friendly and um, more more willing to tolerate the existence of children. 
Um, you know, I, I don't think the the abortion question can be isolated from from that. And I think I, the the problem is, I think the digger we deep the hole, the harder it is to get out, because the the thing that has traditionally made it easier for people to build their own families is their existing family network of brothers, sisters, you know, in-laws, etc. And as those shrink, the pressure on the, the existing branch grows and grows until it snaps. Um, and right now we're still in free fall. So anyway, that's, um, that's my kind of dire perspective on it, on it is that, um, the, the whole direction has to change towards, um, you know, population growth. Maddie asked a question to you. How optimistic are you about the pro-life cause at the moment? Very, somewhat, not at all. I'm somewhat optimistic. I mean, well, I, probably hopeful. I think that's probably a better word. I mean, things aren't really going very well politically. There's obviously been a lot of setbacks. But like I said um, in my previous answer, I think that we have to take stock of, of the victories that we have won the legal victory that Charlie articulated, but also just the victory for human life. There are 32,000 babies in the world now that otherwise would have been killed violently. So that's that's something. Reason to be hopeful. Charlie? I am a mixture. I don't think that we should sniff at a change that we spent 50 years trying to bring about, but I do think that in the short term, maybe even the medium term, it's going to be rough sledding. I take Maddie's point. That's fantastic news. 32,000 is extraordinary. One would be an improvement. But I do suspect that maybe in five years' time, we'll see less salutary numbers. But I believe that in the long run, this is going to be regarded as barbarism. Because the more we learn about the unborn child and the better our technology gets to show that child and also to keep that child alive if it is born early the less deniable it becomes and i don't think that in a hundred years time our attitudes will be where they are now i think things you know i think there's just a subterranean level of change that's happening that I look forward to in the long term. You know, I just, um, you know, I think the, the ethic or the intuition that is very prominent in parts of the left, uh, to honor the natural and, um, you know, to honor nature, whether through the, through their environmentalism, et cetera, at some point that has to extend to humanity and human fertility. Um, you know, there's something kind of crazy about, um, you know, worrying excessively about, um, whether a, a chemical fertilizer is altering the nutritional aspects of tomatoes, but having like no concern at all about chemically, like just feeding hormones to women nonstop from, age 13 to 35. Um, like I, I see those concerns being raised all the time now in a way that's suggestive of, of some kind of revolution of thinking in the future. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think at some point there's just this, um, uh, going to be this pressure to, to no longer try to use, uh, maybe medicine and technology to fit humanity to an ideology of how we should live, but to actually look at like what makes human beings thrive, the human creature thrive and maybe, uh, build our politics around that. So I'm on the low end of somewhat with that. Let's pause. Let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our meter paywall. Your way if you sign up and log in. See about 90% fewer ads. Your way if you want to, to get deeper into our community, to comment on articles and blog posts, and be invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. And most importantly, it's a really crucial way to support our important journalism. We don't need people to pay a lot for what they they get and they read at NR, but we need them to pay a little bit. So if you're not paying already, please consider doing it today, tomorrow, the day after, and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So Charlie, we had this nation-shaking scandal involving a boy, cute as a button, Big Kansas City Chiefs fan, went to a game, wanted to get on TV the way kids do, and decked himself out in Kansas City Chief regalia, including a great big Indian hair, hair um, headdress, and painted his face, as football and other fans do, in the Kansas City colors, half black, half red. And then this idiot from Deadspin, a sports writing outfit, took a picture of him from the, an image from just the, the black side of his face and said, oh my God, here we go. Look at this. This kid hates Indians and black people. Look, I think that this is disgraceful and the Kansas City Chiefs must be immediately expelled from the AFC and prevented from playing in the postseason or in the Super Bowl. No, this is that's a that's a Jaguar fan talking there. <laughs> I think this suggested to me that the fever may have broken a little. The press in certain quarters is no less dishonest. I struggle to believe that that writer, such as he is, got through that whole drafting process without having seen another photograph. If he did, then he should be fired. But it didn't work. The most common reaction I saw to his attempt was, oh, shut up. It seemed as if he was saying the words of the incantation and wondering why this time it wasn't working. Of course, it then turned out to be even less true and even funnier in the truth than it had seemed. Not only was the kid wearing the colors of the Kansas City Chiefs rather than wearing blackface, but he himself was Native American. But he didn't need to be. He's a small child supporting his football team. If he wants to go to the game in an Indian headdress and wear black and white, the Kansas, uh, black and red, the Kansas City Chiefs colors, then he can. And before it was clear that he was Native American, the response was, 
don't be ridiculous. Stop picking on a child. This guy's eight years old. He's a Chiefs fan. And I just wonder if there is a little exhaustion now with this sort of journalism, if you can call it that, mm-hmm. with this relentless attempt to find outrage, even when to get there, you have to try to damage the reputation and life and fandom of a small child. So I was left a little hopeful after this, irritated that this guy tried to do it, but warmed by the responses I saw. Yeah, I mean, this guy said that this is what happens, MBD, when we ban books and attack critical race theory. A kid shows up in his team's regalia you know, at a sporting event. It's so ridiculous, and there, there's nothing malicious even if, as Charlie says, you're, you're not Native American and wearing an Indian headdress to celebrate your team, that team that's called the Chiefs. <laughs> well, you know, ever since Native American mascots have been a subject of you know national controversy, people have been trying to point out over and over again that the public high schools that typically have uh, Native American mascots or even the name Redskins in there uh, for their their school mascot are predominantly Native American themselves in and based in Oklahoma. Um, and uh, I've always thought that this um, attempt to get rid of these mascots has been misguided. Um, now, it's absolutely true, and I accept that some Native Americans may be offended by them. It doesn't look like the majority are, but um, these, you know, mascots are reductive uh, portrayals of cultures, not because the people drawing them or wearing them are malicious, but because they are mascots. They are literally cartoons that rely on exaggeration. for, you know, comedic or effect or just to be visually memorable. And, um, you know, it just makes no sense to uh, erase all of them at once and leave up ones of, you know, white figures like the Notre Dame Fighting Irish when you're, when you're getting rid of the Cleveland Indians. Um, you know, and in fact, like, it's very easy to imagine 60 years hence that people say, oh, in the age of Trump, they erased all the Native American mascots in a racist fury, you know, uh, while keeping, you know, the Trojans and the Fighting Irish. Um, You know, you just have to understand that these, that mascots can be silly, um, like the Cleveland Indian was silly, and that, you know, dressing up for a football game is about, you know, putting on an exaggerated form of war paint and um, you know, it's not meant uh, it's not meant as an offense. I mean, these, these teams were obviously named in tribute to the idea of native Americans mm-hmm. as heroic, as warriors, right. as, Honorable as fighters, formidable yeah. as, you know, um, you know, and that in itself may feel like a reduction on one side where, you know, people might want, Native Americans be remembered for other things, but it is. I, I just it's think usually it's a, a reduction. Most people um, don't. I would rather it's usually a reduction. Most people don't mind. 
Right. I mean, I would rather that Native Americans be remembered for um, those qualities than simply being remembered for, you know, being casino owners. I mean, give me a break. So, Maddie, this kid is obviously having such a great time. And as Charlie points out, this effort basically backfired. But still, to, to, to take a, a moment of joy and, and try to make it into a morality tale about uh, racism and, and hatred, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's disgraceful but all too typical. Yeah, I really feel sorry for kids now that they can grow up in an environment where one single innocent bit of fun, or maybe not so innocent, maybe a, a teenager just pushing boundaries as teenagers do, um, can be captured on somebody's phone and then shared with the entire world. I mean, I think this this young boy was protected by his his mum who who got on the defence for him. And also as as Charlie points out, you know, that there wasn't a huge mob waiting for him because it didn't didn't land quite the way I think it'd been intended to land. But just just how bad faith you have to be to make your target a child um, in this current media environment where you could get a mob <laughs> up against somebody and sort of derail um, derail their life as, as has happened in other cases uh, like the the teenager who wore um, the traditional Chinese dress to prom in Utah and was accused of cultural appropriation a few years ago or there was um, another one, what was it, the the 15-year-old who used the N-word in a Snapchat message. Again, not great that she did that, obviously, but um, that's what teenagers do. They, they do dumb things. They say dumb things. And the fact that they can do so now with, with a global audience is, must be terrifying for, for them and for, for any parent. Um, but, yeah, the fact that it was so bad faith, it tells you a lot more about the writer than it does about the child. Um, but it does, I think it's helped by this idea that you can be accidentally or inadvertently racist mm-hmm. um right you know right. so even a child you know they, they think that this is innocent but really they're furthering this this racist ideology and this is where you know the the whole um critical race theory and transgender ideology has just caused so much damage and, and caused a lot of people to self-censor is because they genuinely think like, oh, if I say the wrong thing, people are going to think I'm a racist, which is such a jump. Maybe you just said something clumsy or maybe you offended someone and that wasn't your attention. Maybe it was your attention and you were making a joke. Like, lighten up. So, Charlie, I think you've already suggested an answer to this, but next question to you. We have reached peak outrage journalism of this sort. Yes or no? I think we might have. Yeah. Both because a lot of the people who engage in this sort of journalism seem to be either getting fired or replaced by AI. And because those who consume it seem not to like it anymore, if they ever did. So yeah, I think we may have reached a peak. Yeah, I think we might have reached the peak, although Charlie's answer suggests to me uh, an even more dire future where not only the outrage journalism is produced by AI, but literally the outrages themselves are produced by AI for our uh, entertainment, titillation, and distraction. Um, So maybe maybe we'll be, um, you know, you'll be able to log on to your favorite 
social network and they will know to feed you outrageous stuff like this all the time uh, in order to keep you uh, buying high salt, high sugar foods and politically apathetic while uh, Wall Street and the military industrial complex continue to rob us. There we go. There's the Michael we all miss. Maddie. I think the peak was um, the the Covington uh, episode. I think since then, it's not really not really had that effect on people because they're aware that there could be context or they could they're aware that this might be uh, much to do about nothing. That's so smart. Yeah, I think we've we've come off of it some, but but not hugely, and obviously not enough with that let's hit a few other things before we go mbd you've been watching the tv show slow horses yes so apple tv has been producing um a serialized version of um uh, mick heron's uh british spy novels uh which um the first one was called slow horses uh or uh and it's set in this um <laughs> it's basically the anti-James Bond. Um, the main character is named Jackson Lamb, and he heads up a division of MI5, which is for all the people that washed out or failed or in some way disgraced the agency. Uh, and he himself is kind of a slovenly character, you know, who's constantly sneezing or putting his foot up on the table and you see his socks have holes in them. Um, and it's just, there's just kind of genius to the, the stories. I like that the MI5 it portrays is haughty, overfunded, and shamelessly manipulating British internal politics rather than protecting the state, (laughs) um, as it should be. And, um, Gary Oldman is the lead in the Apple TV adaptation and he's just always fun to watch. Maddie, this is a, a new experience for you, presumably, but you saw a long movie that's actually good. <laughs> the Godfather. I did, yeah. Um, for years, I have been embarrassed whenever this uh, this movie comes up and people say, oh, you must have seen it. And I say, no, I haven't seen it. And they say, oh, you have to see The Godfather. What? You're missing out. Anyway, they were right. Um, over Thanksgiving, watched it with my in-laws and I can honestly say it was six hours very well spent we did part one and part two and uh don't tell me anything about part three because that's next on my list (laughs) charlie well listeners may remember a while ago that i was awaiting and then received a delivery of wine from tuscany we tasted it while out there and ordered some back i had not tried any of it for a while until recently and i can soothe any worried minds and let them know that it was as good as it tasted in Tuscany. There's always that small fear that you just bought it because of the surroundings and everyone was nice and you were mm-hmm. on vacation. Caught right? up in the ambience. This wine, yeah, this wine is actually terrific. And even better, one sip of it, and I was instantly transported back into the Italian countryside. So I'm glad that I have two or three cases of it left. That's awesome. So speaking of movies, I saw Napoleon and also hated it. There were some battle scenes that were pretty compelling to watch. And I, I like the attempted sweep of it. But the problem with the movie is that there's this this emptiness at the core. And that's um, 
Joaquin Phoenix's depiction of Napoleon Bonaparte, this incredibly charismatic and inspiring man, whatever you think of his, uh, what he did, and I'm not, not a, a fan, who uh, bonded with his troops, who was witty, who was incredibly intelligent, and de- de- depicts him as a dullard and a, a bore for some bizarre reason. I don't know why you'd make a movie two and a half hours long and uh, devoted to Napoleon and do that. Do that to him. It makes no sense. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD. What's your pick? My pick is a Philip Klein column. It's the indictments, stupid, which just sums up basically the political story of the last year, which is that um, what had looked like it was becoming, could be a very competitive Republican primary was interrupted by the indictments of Donald Trump and those indictments one after the other set his approval and his uh, favorability among Republicans up and up and up. And that's where we are today, where negative partisanship is driving is the driving force in our politics. Maddie, what's your pick? My pick is a corner post by Jay Nordlinger um, about uh, Henry Kissinger's receipt of the Nobel Peace Prize. Jay obviously wrote a book, uh, a history of the Nobel Peace Prize and and all the controversies um, that's that it's attracted over the years. Um, I just thought it was a really great piece. Charlie? My piece is by Christian Snyder. Speaking of Native Americans, it's about Elizabeth Warren, who has mm-hmm. developed the absurd idea that there is or could be in the United States in the year 2023 such a thing as a sandwich monopoly. This piece is great because it argues convincingly how silly that notion is, but also it makes a lot of puns about sandwiches that readers will no doubt enjoy. So my pick is a Dan McLaughlin piece, AFP Bets Big, on Nikki Haley. Dan, among other things, is an incredibly insightful political analyst, and I happen to agree basically with every word of this one, especially this is another sign that Chris Christie needs to drop out. You know, he's not like Doug Burgum or Asa Hutchison. They're kind of, you know, scraping along at one or two percent or zero percent. And even if they stay for the duration, you know, can't by definition have that big effect on anything. He's taken, you know, 10, 11, 14 percent in New Hampshire that's coming out of Nikki Haley's hide that they're fishing in exactly the same electoral waters uh, among independents, Democrats, moderates, and liberals in New Hampshire. Nikki's a, l- a little wider than that, but Christie is just limited to that group. And even if something miraculous were, were going to happen and Haley collapses and Christie wins New Hampshire, there's nowhere for him to go. There's nowhere for him to go. So this is a, a forlorn effort and it's time for him to realize that that is the case. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Waterstone. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.